This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. This is a Business Radio special presentation of Dollars and Change from the floor of the 2019 Total Impact Conference in Center City, Philadelphia. Here are your hosts, Cheryl Kuhlman and Sandy Hunt. Welcome to Dollars and Change here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Sandy Hunt. And I'm Cheryl Kuhlman. And Dollars and Change is live every Thursday from 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern, 5 to 6 p.m. Pacific. And we are replayed throughout the week. Check out that Sirius XM app. We can be with you all the time. Keep your company all day. Listen to your favorite shows on your commute or anytime. But we're excited today because we are bringing you a special program. We're here on the floor of the Total Impact Conference in Center City, Philadelphia. We're going to sit down with four guests who are at the conference to talk about their work in the field of social impact and impact investing. If you listeners are hearing this and thinking, ah, you know, it's not, I'm, not, I'm not about impact investing, I urge you, if you care about impact, hang with us. These guests are great. We're going to really talk about the relevance of their work to every one of our listeners. Well, and, and if you care about impact, if you care about the world, I mean, if you care about what's going on if you breathe inside and the eat yeah. and <laughs> breathe and eat, and, and uh, yeah, that about covers it. Exactly. So, so stick with us. We've got some great guests. Let me run through them. Our first guest live here next to me is the executive director of the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies, Bali, Rodney Foxworth. Rodney, how are you today? I'm doing quite well. Happy to be here. Excellent. He's going to be a tough act to follow, but following him (laughs) will be Jackie Vanderbrug, the Managing Director and Head of Sustainable Impact Investment Strategy at Bank of America. A long title, but she's worthy of it. We love Jackie. She's great. I was just watching her on the panel. I'm going to make her repeat a lot of what she just Uh, said on the panel because I thought it was quite good. Yes. Uh, At the bottom of the hour, we'll have Andrew Hones joining us. Andrew is the President and CEO of Mariner Infrastructure Investment Management. And then we will round out with our fourth and final guest, Diedrich Timmer, the Executive Vice President of Client Relations at Sustainalytics. Yes. If listeners aren't familiar with Sustainalytics, they're a ratings agency. So as these fields build, people need to measure and, and you know capture, synthesize, and organize what the heck we're measuring when it comes to impact. So great conversations. As always, listeners, thank you for being with us. We hope you learn something and do something as a result of our show. Rodney, let's jump right into it. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. Why did you launch Bali? So I actually did not launch Bali. However, which is really exciting, so we're in Philadelphia. So we actually were founded 18 years ago by our wonderful Philadelphia-based entrepreneur, Judy Wicks. Ah, yes. White Dog Cafe. And she's here. And she is here. I saw her. I thought I saw her. Yeah. Absolutely. So Judy founded the organization, um, like I said, 18 years ago or so, really because she noticed that a number of networks were founding around the country. Um, of, of entrepreneurs, of small business owners that are really focused on impact mm-hmm. and local and really creating sustainable business and enterprise. However, what she recognized was that a number of them, as they got more and more successful, unfortunately were being acquired by mm. broader international, global enterprises that did not have the same kind of level of commitment right. to impact and sustainability. And so she created the Bali Network really as sort of an alternative to the standard business as usual um, and many communities across the U.S. and Canada. And so we've been really fortunate to be able to have a wonderful founder like Judy. And that's why I'm really happy to be here in Philadelphia today. Very yeah. cool. To ask one follow-up question. So is the is the goal for those companies to not be acquired or to be acquired sort of intelligently and ensure the impact persists? So the, the goal, and, and so the organization has been around for 18 years at this point, and so we've had a few different iterations. Um, and so today what our focus is is supporting communities throughout the U.S. and Canada in which when you're building enterprise, when you're building um, alternative solutions to the, the sort of extractive economy um, in your community, that there's a, a way to focus on equity, to focus on impact, to really drive and mobilize the kind of capital. When we were at this um, Total Impact Conference talking about impact investing, really having a place-based approach that's grounded in equity and inclusion. And so really it's about empowering communities that have the resources and means that they need to be successful from an economic perspective. And I think that's important because that's often the thing that you're, you don't see in a lot of the big businesses. You have to learn from others and to try to say, what worked for you? How did you implement that? How do you work on the different tensions that this may you know, result in? So yeah. a learning community. The mission statement, the mission is to create local economies that work for all. A crisp 
tight mission Chris. statement with a humongous <laughs> number of, of implications. That's Absolutely. a big job. You know, how do you define all? Like when you're targeting, working with these work, member organizations mm -hmm. on what they're measuring, assessing, trying to do more of, do you have, do you have key metrics? Are there a number of dimensions you look at? Because that's a huge range of possibilities. So let, I'll start with answering the question of what we define by all. And so um, in our history as an organization, we really were founded in um, the majority of the folks that we're working with were not as reflective as, as the country, for example. <laughs> and, and so when we think about the question of all, when you look at the dynamics, the, the demographics of the U.S., for example, you know, it's projected that next year, the majority of 18 and under will be non-white Americans. Mm -hmm. And by 2043, 2040 or so, the total population. Right. Yep. And so we're, we're hitting in that direction. So when we say all, so the, the leaders in, in communities that we work with uh, currently, you know, we really try to work with uh, individuals and leaders that are in places where the demographics are much more reflective of where we're hitting as a country. Mm -hmm. um, and then working with a range of individuals, institutions, philanthropic institutions, uh, to invest their capital in ways that really do empower sort of like that next trajectory. Um, and then we also prioritize rural communities as well, because I think that's something that's really lost in a general conversation. Um, I think when we see some of the things that have happened in our political divide over the last several years, but particularly in the last election, I think it was shown in presidential, uh, presidential election, um, that we've oftentimes really overlooked the needs of rural communities. Uh, and so rural is also a major, major um, uh, place of, of interest for us and in making sure that we're advocating and helping to mobilize resources. Great. Can you talk about a few wins? So with, you know, in a 20-year history, mm -hmm. uh, Bali's had the chance to, you know, be on the front lines of some mm -hmm. issues by local, et cetera. Talk about some of the things that you're really happy to have seen the evolution of over the last two decades. Yeah, absolutely. I think they're really the great thing about Bali is that we're always pushing the edge. And, and so you pointed out the buy local. So 18 years ago, you know, buying local was not necessarily trendy. Now, oh, yep. now farm to table, all that is that's sort Super of normal, trendy. is mainstream. It's it's not unusual. So we're constantly looking for what the next thing is. So a perfect example is we're here at the at the Total Impact Conference. You know, several years ago, um, in 2014, we launched a, a program, the Foundations, the Local Economy Foundation Circle, um, that really works with foundation leaders that are place-based in communities to invest their 95% ah. into community in ways that really um, drive change. And for those who do not know, um, f private foundations are only required to spend out spend uh, 5% of their endowment annually. Right. And so that was a remarkable So 95% change. for our listeners is, is invested. Exactly. You know, it's it's a, you know, and accruing returns. Yeah. And, and often invested with no, no alignment to the mission of the foundation. Absolutely. And so, you know, we had... Uh, the Ford Foundation talking about that. That's right, always fun. Yeah. And what's great about it is that in that program, we've helped to catalyze over $150 million invested into local communities around impact. And so I think that's a big win. And we really want to grow that work and demonstrate a model for more and more smaller place-based institutions and individuals to be able to participate in impact. Yeah. When we think about our listeners, we've got... You know, a huge range of folks, hopefully, who are listening to the show, maybe business leaders, certainly participants in the economy. And, and some, they all live someplace. Some capacity, mm -hmm. They all live someplace, Cheryl, exactly where I was going. What's something our listeners can take away from this show? If you could challenge everyone to one action this week, one behavior change. You know, it was really great listening to the conversation um, on the panel earlier because I think it's becoming easier and easier to be able to participate in Impact. There are more, from an investor opportunity, there are more retail options for you to be able to consider. I mean, you've got uh, Calvert Impact Capital, you've got Swell, you've got Aspiration, you've got a number of ways to participate. And so if you're someone that is looking to invest, you know, really go to your investment advisor and really challenge them if they're pushing back to find opportunities for you to actually contribute to either your local economy or just values that you care about, whether that's environment, whether that's women's issues, whether that's supporting African-American and minority businesses. Um, there, are, there are so many opportunities to do that today. Couldn't necessarily that, say that 20 years ago, but mm -hmm. today there are a range of opportunities. So I, I would encourage anyone to go to their advisor and say, how can I make this happen? Yeah, and I think that part of, we, we often have heard from some of our guests the phrase, every dollar you use is a vote for the world you want to create. And so right. this is part, partially investment. But it's also looking at, you know, where you're buying, the buy local stuff. Mm -hmm. You're right, it is trendy, 
But it's important. It's a way of thinking, and, and that can imbue a lot of the other activities you do. It's kind of catalytic. Yeah, it's absolutely. Very catalytic. And, and to your point, Rodney, you know, we're, we're big champions of even if you're not ready to move your money or let's say you take a look at your advisor's available you know, investment products and you don't see anything there that's impact, still have the conversation mm-hmm. because that's how you signal the demand is there. So if you say to your advisor, by this time next year, you know, I want whatever it is, you know, more of a, you know, racial equity screen, Mm -hmm. guns out, whatever your sort of impact preference is, even if they don't have that product today, they're going, you know, they're going to roll that up and say, you know what demand we can't meet? I'm hearing more and more about, you know, impact broadly or XYZ specifically, and Mm -hmm. we need to be able to deliver for, for our clients. Um, as we wrap up here, because time flies when we're having fun, we got our we got our five minute card there. Um, tell us what's next for for Bali and uh, what you're most excited about for the future of this work. Yeah, so I'm really excited about the work we're doing with rural leaders. Um, we actually have a fellowship program where this week we we have uh, 25 leaders um, that work specifically in rural communities. A lot of in indigenous leaders as well. Makes sense. Um, and so the challenges um, and opportunities in those places are pretty remarkable. And I'm really excited about um, the things that we're seeing there um, in these communities and the amount of talent and opportunities for folks to really be able to participate from an impact perspective. You know, one of the things that we're working on for your, for your listeners who are not familiar with donor advised funds, but donor advised funds are an opportunity for individuals to sort of set up mini foundations. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have crossed over to $110 billion in assets uh, last year in 2018. Um, so it's a really remarkable vehicle um, to practice a different kind of philanthropy. And by the way, you can actually invest out of those vehicles as well. And so the thing that we're really excited about and working on is what we're calling a community-advised fund. And so what that means is we have hundreds of leaders across the U.S. and Canada in which they're, identif- they're able to identify opportunities for investment in their communities. And so looking at it as a crowdsourcing opportunity, where we can actually take that advisement and leadership and understanding from leaders who are deeply working communities to help us think about what ways we can invest. That's awesome. And I'm very curious to see what happens because what we've seen with Village Capital, when you yep. democratize the selection process, a lot more diversity shows up. Um, so very eager to see what comes out of the, the CAFs. Are you calling them CAFs? We're calling them CAFs. Community advice funds? Yep. Okay, excellent. <laughs> well, we will certainly stay tuned. Uh, thank you so much for being with us here. Rodney Foxworth, Executive Director of Bali, the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies. We know you've got to run off and do a webinar. Spread the word of your, your great work to all those viewers and listeners. So thanks for spending some yeah, time with us thanks here. Thanks for having me. It was great. All great right. to see you. Have a great day. Thanks so much, Rodney. Jumping right over to our next guest. And literally, we pivot. <laughs> An old friend, a wonderful friend of Wharton Social Impact and all things impact investing, Jackie Vanderbroek. Welcome to the program. Thank you so welcome much. Welcome back to the program, yeah. probably. I think we've had you on before. Several times. So Cheryl and I already admitted we're going to make you repeat much of what you said in the panel. Jackie, as a reminder to our listeners, is the Managing Director and Head of Sustainable Impact Investment Strategy at Bank of America. Jackie, let's start by talking about why Bank of America cares. Why do they, you know, why do they have a team with this title? What sort of demand are you seeing? Yeah, so multiple reasons, Sandy. I guess, I mean, if you listen to our CEO, Brian Moynihan, you can't hear him talk for about two minutes before he says ESG is a lens for responsible growth. So as a firm, this is something that is a commitment from the top down, and all of Brian's uh, directs have ESG, KPIs. It's, It's the DNA of how we operate. But in terms of our wealth management businesses, it is absolutely um, a response to client demand, right? And so it doesn't matter if you're talking about um, a millennial with their first investment walking into a bank branch office and the fact that in that bank branch office they can get a total impact portfolio um, or a institution that's saying, wait, we've started to realize that we want to change our investment policy statement. Um, you know, so we want to give all clients the power to have impact through their portfolios. And this is, you know, means that there are a lot of opportunities for the different approaches that you're talking about. And one of the things that we've seen at Wharton is the increasing demand from students, but also then the need to um, provide information, research, data, so that they have some comfort moving ahead, right? So what's the challenge that you're seeing around, around that, and what are the opportunities? Yeah, there's so many um, 
educational gaps here, and this is where I love what you all are doing at Wharton and, and the fact that you're not just doing it at Wharton, but you're spreading it throughout business schools across the country. Because um, unfortunately, we have a persistent myth that this is um, concessionary, or as I sometimes say, a great way to ethically lose money. Oh. Um, so, you know, it's like, it's not a bad thing if you really, you know. Um, and and then we also have an equally persistent myth that it, it won't make a difference, which I find really oh. fascinating, right? That um, You've got good intentions, but it's not really, it's window dressing. In it's fact. window dressing, you know, it's... Um, you know, it's public markets, they're liquid, um, you know, or you can invest in a, you know, a, a company, but you can't control it, even if it's a private company. So, you know, you don't know. There's just a lot of interesting things from that perspective. And I understand, you know, it's, it's challenging, right? We don't want to overstep with our assessment of the impact that we're having. And on the other hand, um, I do think that our clients are looking and saying, look, um, on average, I want to be invested in better companies, mm -hmm. and I want capitalism to be more accountable. Right. Yep. Yeah. The, the statement I always come back to is better than before. Yeah. Like we could worry <laughs> about perfection, but you know, can we just be a little bit better than before and do these things in a um, in a more responsible way? You know, well, nudges yeah. in that right direction. And you made a point on the panel that this is kind of catalytic. That once you start thinking this way, and you have a little bit of success, and you realize, oh, I can do that. Oh, I can do it in another area. It really becomes something that you can't help but think about. Well, and Cheryl, this is the critical piece that I talk to advisors about, right? Because advisors are schooled in trying to have all the answers. Mm -hmm. And we're really trying to shift them to have more questions. Mm. Um, as advisors come to clients with more questions about, so Cindy, you mentioned this. What's motivating you? Mm -hmm. What's behind mm -hmm. that? what would be your preferences, right? Would you be, you know, more interested in companies that are outperforming their peers or are you interested in innovators? Are there some things you'd want to exclude? You start to ask more questions. Then what advisors realize is the clients don't need them to have all the answers. Um, they want to go on a journey, right? And that's what a good advisor-client relationship is anyways. It's a journey that starts with a step, not with perfection. Yeah. Right. No, I always, um, I say to Cheryl all the time, you know, when you talk about impact, you talk about the things you were raised to not talk about at the dinner table, <laughs> sex, religion, and politics, right? It gets, it gets personal. Why do you care about these impact issues? But we are seeing that more and more a trend of, you know, people are making financial decisions that, w that reflect their values. We see, you know, disproportionate responses of millennials and women saying this in surveys and just a more integrated sense of self where people want to, per our last guest, you know, buy local and shop local and they want to think about their impact in all dimensions of their life, not maybe a carve out yeah. philanthropic gift as was once the case. Because there's really a sense of agency with that. There was the discussion of somebody who went vegan and then wanted to invest in companies that were, you know, doing, you know, non-meat you know, products. So you kind of sort of say, I can make, I can make things happen that align with the way I'm wanting to live my life. Yeah. Jackie, what are some things that give you optimism and excitement about, you know, you've, you've been in the field for, for years, you know, in the last five years, what has taken off, grown, become mainstream that gives you lots of hope for our world? So one of them, Sandy, is that um, we did put in our Merrill guided investing, which is really that you know, online, if you're on an edge, um, a series of questions where someone who just says, I want the CIO office to help guide my portfolio, um, may find themselves either with an impact portfolio or a traditional market tracking portfolio. And in the short amount of time that this has been available, 20% um, of those just coming in off the street are choosing an impact portfolio. Wow. And that is even with one of those questions, because again, we're a very regulated industry, sure. being are you willing to pay more? Because the underlying fees on some of these products are higher. You know, an ESG ETF on average can be higher than a non-ESG ETF. We're going to get to the place where it's not. But so it's quite interesting to see, you know, again, with no additional marketing, with no targeting, that we're still at that 20% of people saying, yes, this is the direction I want to go. Um, you know, so, so that's one hand. Um, on the other hand, I am very excited about um, some of the product availability that we're starting to see. Um, that goes beyond just the ESG ETF, that is 
um, probably like your previous guest, got you know more of that. Um, I can think about it in my backyard, or I can understand it thematically in terms of the world I want to see. Um, and I, I talk a lot to people about you know we get the future we invest in. I came into investing because it felt like wow, it matters who gets capital for what. Yeah, yeah. And so people get that, and that's back, you know, Cheryl, to your comment of. You know, it's an aligned in my values, but it's also like, well, if I want to put capital here, because I need this product, maybe other people need this product, we can start, you know, at this moment I was walking through an airport about, uh, I don't know, probably sometime in the last year, and I, for the first time, saw one of those breast pumping oh, yeah. like stations. the nursing station. Yes. Yep. And They're I like little pods. Almost burst into tears because I had this like visceral memory of pumping in a public bathroom at the at the wash basins because there was no outlet anywhere else where I could do this. So yep. I was out there like with all the other ladies. Yep. <laughs> it was like, oh, or we could invest in companies that do this. Yeah, and and, and watch the demand and the yeah. revenue. Yes, my um, last SOCAP was pumping or in the bathroom of the plane because oh my goodness. there wasn't any other private available, you know, and, and this is a business solution, you know, and we're seeing more and more of these things um, that are revenue generating and deliver, you and, know, an and impact. meet great need, right? Meet great need. Yeah. Um, what's next? So um, I think what's next is we figure out how to language this for the average person, right? Because I can talk to you about my theory of change. Yes. And someone who came out of philanthropy or maybe who has a very large family foundation can talk about their theory of change. But the average family doesn't think that way. They don't talk about that, right? They do know things that matter to them. They do know goals that they have. So it's this integration of this into the mainstream movable middle that cares. I I did mention the Morningstar survey that says 72% of Americans say that they'd like to invest, you know, are interested in that sustainability conversation. So um, I think, yes, more products, yes, more um, data, yes, all of that. But in the end, um, we got to take this beyond the group that understands it right now. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think part of it that you've talked to around that is that really it also does sort of say, how do we talk about this in a way that isn't jargony, that isn't just industry folks, isn't yet another you know set of letters that we're, we're using. Um, and so I think talking about the values and what matters to is a way to get there. Mm-hmm. And increasing that financial agency that folks feel comfortable walking into their bank branch, as you said, and saying, this is something I care about. Can you do this for me? Right. And the interesting thing, Cheryl, is the talking, getting out of the lingo for a financial advisor, you know, actually is talking about how these factors for companies affect their revenue, their costs, and their cost of capital, right? It's talking about it as... Um, you know, unquantified risk, which is the language that they're going to understand. Talking to clients, we've, you know, we in the financial world are great at obfuscating all sorts of um, (laughs) things. And so getting into plain language for both the advisor and for the client. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And the one one way I've been thinking about it recently is, you know, what are the things that make you gasp when you're reading the news? What Mm -hmm. are the things that sort of like pull your heartstrings or make you think, I want to vote differently or, you know, get behind this issue? Your money is also a way to To take action against that. And I think... um, you know, it's a, it's a way you can do it every day also. You know, that money is doing something. Mm-hmm. It's sitting somewhere every day. Um, and it's a way you can feel like even if you've got a full day and you don't have the time to make, you know, to volunteer or your, make some sort of direct your impact. money can be working for it. Your yeah. money's working 24-7. Yeah. It's going somewhere. And it's a great way to feel like, you know, your values are in action every day, you know, doing that somewhere. Very cool. Jackie, what are... Um, you know, what are some big questions you think are still outstanding in the field right now that, um, you know, five years from now you'd like to see answered in order to respond to demand better, have more confidence in things? I'm really compelled by the fact that the sustainable development goals are the best answer we have to a strategic plan for the planet, right? They're the, the best, most comprehensive, bottoms up, assessment. Um, and it is right now really difficult to you know, score a portfolio based on that. Yeah. Um, 
because of some of the things we mentioned in the panel in terms of, you know, not just cherry picking what a company is doing well, but addressing, you know, the things that are negative, addressing the externalities that occur and so forth. But the more that we can do that, and I'll tell you at Bank of America, um, Brian was down at the G20, made a commitment for us to um, move capital towards a set of VSDGs. So we have a process to look across the firm at what is our contribution to the SDGs. As more companies are doing that internally, it's going to be easier on the external side. So I think we're you know, getting this tabula rasa so that we can talk between the public, private, and social sectors in a way that we haven't that in the past, it, yeah. or we can talk and measure, mm -hmm. will be important. I think that's a good point, because you're right. It's In the past, when you had the sort of financial discussions and then the impact and philanthropy discussions, it was a different language. There wasn't a common a point there, and you're right. People don't always have theories of change that comes out of a particular area. But if we can get a common way of thinking about things and talking across the different sectors, the more likely we are to actually make something happen and, and to share that information in ways that matter. Mm -hmm. Jackie, last question as we wrap up here. Um, for our listeners who are not sophisticated investors, they're listening to this show going, and holy cow, those are some words I don't know. And, you know, must be nice if I had millions, I'd do it too. If I could afford to take that risk or um, felt really capable in understanding my investments, I would do it. What action can that listener take to learn more or, or perhaps make a move for their money to be more aligned with their values today? Yeah, there's so many more good answers to that question than there were <laughs> even three years ago. I, bet. I mean, um, at Merrill, um, in our online um, edge area, we have a, a thing called stock story and portfolio story that goes through three chapters about what, how does this company make its money, you know, how does it compare to its peers? One of those chapters is ESG. So you can educate yourself. You can get an ESG picture of your portfolio online. Hmm. So you can do that, you know, open a Merrill Edge account with $5,000. Um, but you can also, if you have an advisor, talk to your advisor and just say, how could I, you know, what part of my portfolio could we start with? Is it shifting out, you know, one of our current exchange traded funds for an ESG exchange traded fund? Is it some community investment notes? What could I look at, right? So there are a set of things. And then the thing that we often forget is proxy voting. Most firms now do offer some sort of proxy voting opportunity. We do. It's no cost to clients. Sign up. There is no reason why you shouldn't be voting, you know, in accord with your values. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think it's validating to hear someone representing the advisor perspective saying, listeners, it's go in and have that conversation. Have There's no to. wrong way to have that conversation. It's not, you know, unacceptable or inappropriate to walk in and just say, these are the things I care about. Or I don't even yeah. know. I, you know, it, it can be, these are the things I care about. I'm not sure what this could look like. Right. I want you to help me go further. That's the place to start. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I think, uh, most people have day jobs, right? They're not, they don't get to spend all their time wonking out about the impact investing world. Like we have the pleasure right, to, right. and that, that is realistically where it's going to start for most people. And I hope it's, I hope it's, um, our listeners remember that and, and that this empowers some folks who feel like they're not investing the way they want to, to go in and not feel inappropriate having that first conversation and just saying, I don't know how, but could we, I want to do more or yeah. different. I want to take a step, yeah. right? I well, mean, you even know what's in there right now. Yeah. I want to take a step and it's yeah. possible. Mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the key point. Excellent. Well, steps forward. Certainly, we've enjoyed this conversation. We know everyone at this conference <laughs> will be empowered to take steps forward, given fabulous panelists like yourself. Jackie Vandenbroek, Managing Director and Head of Sustainable Impact Investment Strategy at Bank of America. Thank you for being with us again. Thank you. Thank you, Sandy. Thank you, Cheryl. That was Jackie Vanderbrook, Managing Director and Head of Sustainable Impact Investment Strategy at Bank of America. This is Dollars and Change from the Total Impact Conference in Philadelphia. We'll be right back. You're listening to Dollars and Change from the floor of the 2019 Total Impact Conference in Philadelphia. Here again, Cheryl Coleman and Sandy Hunt. 
Welcome back to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Sandy Hunt. And I'm Cheryl Kuhlman. And this conversation, one of the uh, a very fun one in yes. particular, is because we're live here on the floor of the Total Impact Conference. So we hear the chatter behind us, and all the people networking and talking. Yes, exactly. And as we welcome our next guest, uh, we've got an alum. Who, who has sort of you know cut his teeth on some of this impact work in his dissertation That's true. at Penn. So we're excited to welcome Andrew Holmes, President and CEO of Mariner Infrastructure Investment Management. Welcome. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Before we jump into the great work you're doing, I know that your dissertation was part of what spurred your career and interest. Can you give us a little bit of a background on that? Sure. Um, well, I've been in the securitization industry since I graduated Wharton undergrad in 2000. Wow. And um, when the downturn, when the global financial crisis began in 2008, the opportunity to make new products in the securitization market really closed. That window closed. So I took it as um, a chance to go back to school and to uh, study for a PhD. And so I enrolled in the um, applied economics program at, at Wharton. And um, I was originally going to study um, the uh, moral philosophy of money lending. Because you know, it's, it's super interesting because if you think about it, in the ancient uh, Judaic uh, uh, Talmud, also in the Quran and in the Bible, money lending is very much prohibited. It's a very, very bad, thing. very bad thing. And yet, Muhammad Yunus got the Nobel Peace Prize <laughs> for lending money, and not just lending money to anybody, but to some of the poorest people in the world. And now we talk about microfinance as right. a very empowering tool. And I thought it'd be interesting to kind of chart that 180-degree transformation. I want to read this dissertation. I, yeah, as a um, former academic ethicist, I'm very intrigued by that. So that's what I wanted to yeah. research, and I started it. But um, then my advisors at Wharton uh, encouraged me to think of a different approach. And the reason was that uh, they wanted to be able to provide very good criticism of the research that I was doing. And they felt that if so much of my work was focused on this classical moral philosophy from yeah. 3,000 years ago. They had nothing to add. They didn't have a lot to add. So um, at the same time, I was thinking about a business plan to create uh, an institutional scale uh, platform to serve as a counterparty to global uh, banks to help them manage their capital on loan portfolios. We would sell them uh, credit protection on their portfolios and they would reduce the risk weight on the retained exposure that they had on those loan portfolios. And I was thinking about doing this on infrastructure. To allow them to expose themselves to more risk. To allow them to turn over their capital and make new loans. Yeah. Exactly. Optimize their balance sheet. And my dissertation chairman, Bill Laufer, Professor Laufer, he said, well, why don't you start researching something along that lines? And so I began to develop a research thesis called Justice and Infrastructure, in which we looked at the uh, distribution of infrastructure resources around the world, which is totally inadequate I was gonna say. Um, in both the developed world as well as the developing world. Um, you know, I mean, for example, um, roughly, you know, roughly 950 million people who live in sub-Saharan Africa, the 48 countries of sub-Saharan Africa, use on average uh, enough electricity to power a single 100-watt light bulb for three hours a day. Uh, and wow. two-thirds of them don't have any electricity at all. Um, and then when you come into the developed world, there's also major infrastructure shortfalls uh, of a different type and, you know, everything like that. So what I began researching was the distribution of infrastructure around the world, which is inadequate, and then why? Why was the question. And there are many, many valid reasons. But one that really captured my attention was the structure of bank regulation. And in particular, the high risk weights that infrastructure loans and other forms of specialized lending have on the bank, uh, you know, on bank balance sheets. And why do you believe they are perceived or known? It sounds like more perceived than known to be so risky. Well, you know, bank regulation is a complex topic and um, specialized lending has a shorter history. Um, they're not typically supported by broader corporate balance sheets. They're usually just asset-based loans that are supported by a particular project. And so the cash flows that are used to repay those loans are related to that project only. And it's performed very well over a long period of time. However, um, not as long as other asset classes and not as many. I mean, there are, you know, by some estimates, there have been fewer than 10,000 major project financings in the world over the course of the last uh, 30 years. I mean, we're talking about large power plants, large airports, large roads, 
things of that nature. And 10,000 is not statistically robust enough to, for a bank to really make the kind of efficient mm -hmm. credit models that they need to do that yeah. they need to do in order to optimize the risk weight. So we thought, you know, so I thought in my research, they should definitely change this policy, right? Policymakers should reconsider how we treat infrastructure lending, and we should give banks structural encouragement to make more loans in this space. And it's not really that controversial of a topic because we do it in, for example, United States housing policy. There are all kinds of structural inducements for banks and for individuals to buy a house and have a 30-year mortgage. I do the same thing for infrastructure. That was what the, that was what the dissertation ultimately recommended. Um, uh, but uh, at, at the same time, um, Dr. Laufer, uh, he's always full of wonderful ideas. You should have him on a program. He's the we best. Should. Um, Bill uh, said to me, you know, you're uniquely positioned to do something about this. Why don't you do something about this? Not just write about it, do it. Yeah, and so we, I thought it was a good idea. And so instead of going into academia after I graduated, um, I raised a fund. I was, became a first-time fund manager. We raised $500 million. And, um, Not a bad number <laughs> for a first-time fund manager. Holy cow. Um, and we've since gone on... But that's the scale of these projects. Yeah. yeah right, you know yeah. it is. We've since gone on to invest, uh, fully invest fund one. We're investing fund two now. We've, we've made about a billion dollars worth of investments across the platform. And overall, we've taken exposure to about $15 billion dollars worth of infrastructure assets around the world, 70 different countries, 1,200 individual loans. Yeah. And are you, are you myth-busting at all? You know, are you, what, are, what are you seeing in terms of the, the performance of these loans? Well, um, the performance has been, you know, the performance has been uh, in line with the historically good performance of the asset class. You know, historically, infrastructure tends not to default after it exits its construction period. Once it becomes a stabilized asset, it tends to continue to cash flow. And it's not surprising because many of these assets are essential for the communities sure. in which they're located. Yeah. And they can't pick up and leave. So for people who are listening and may not have a sort of specific concrete idea of what you're talking about, can you yeah. give us an example of, of something you've done recently? Well, since we're here at the Impact Conference, yeah. I'd love to give a couple of examples of investments that we've done that actually are impact investments Great. and how we've taken synthetic securitization, which is a tool that's used by many banks and many different asset classes, and really uh, used it to spur really large impact investment activity. So um, we did, uh, you know, we've positively screened several of our portfolios. For example, we did a billion dollar securitization of renewable energy loans some years ago with Unicredit, utility scale renewable energy loans in Italy. We did an affordable housing transaction with Citigroup, a billion dollar portfolio of affordable housing. Those are positively screened. But in 2017, we completed what um, we were very honored, the Financial Times ultimately called it the by far the largest impact investment ever to see the light of day. Wow. And it was a $3 billion portfolio of about a little bit more than 200 legacy infrastructure loans from Credit Agricole's balance sheet. Uh, and um, that portfolio uh, had you know power plants and roads and uh, bridges and airports and everything like that, and it also had coal-fired power plants in it. And we took exposure to those assets, those brown assets that are clearly polluting the environment, clearly negative right. assets. We took exposure to them. Why? Because we were able to procure from Credit Agricole an agreement to redeploy 100% of the freed up capital into new lending in the sustainable, that, that met the sustainable business wow. uh, requirements of the bank, the sustainable business um, framework that the, that the bank had developed. And so it's catalyzed since then, in the last two years, an additional $2 billion of loans to green energy projects, alternative energy projects, public transportation, uh, wastewater management, and other management of um, natural resources. So the idea was basically, look, we could use impact investment as a principle to liberate this capital that was stuck in these assets that are clearly not good for the world, but they're already out there, right? They're, 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 they're there. They're there. The loans have been made. The assets exist. Maybe at some point in the future they won't be refurbished or whatever, but for the time being they're there. Let's, let's give Credit Agricole a chance to take its capital out of, reduce its capital to those brown assets so that it could redeploy it into green assets. So was this a hard sell when you were talking to them? With the, you know, having not the coal companies on your books any longer could be fine, 
but convincing them to to redeploy capital for sustainable and impact. Was that a hard sell? Well, with Credit Agricole, no. No, that's Credit, great. Credit Agricole uh, is one of the global leaders in uh, ESG, impact investments, sustainable lending activities. They have an entire team in their Paris office that is fully dedicated to this. They host conferences around, around the world on this topic. Other of the French banks are also uh, very good in this respect. For example, Natixis, uh, has uh, recently um, been working to color code its entire balance sheet from dark brown to dark green. And uh, they're going to begin to report to their regulators, their shareholders, as well as uh, their management, what is our green adjusted return on equity. And they're going to penalize projects that are brown or browner uh -huh, uh -huh. and promote projects that are green or greener with a lower transfer pricing for lending. Fabulous. That's so exciting. Yeah, it's cool. It takes it takes impact from, you know, for us, I mean, because as institutional investors, right, we, I mean, we're really focused on making, you know, 100, 200, 300, 500 million dollar individual investments um, in large, large portfolios, and our clients are all the largest banks in the world. And so, you know, we can't, unfortunately, as, as super interesting as some of the smaller projects are, just uh, can't do it. We, we just we we don't have the bandwidth to to do it, or the economy of our economy of scale is different. So um, it's great to be able to pioneer with the large banks the integration of impact into their activities. Well, it's just so good to see that kind of leverage happen, right? Yeah. Because again, I think people think of this as I mean, maybe they no longer do, but they had thought of it as a kind of niche thing. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe you got the little little entrepreneur who's doing some interesting stuff, but. Or this maybe really private equity at best. Yeah, but yeah. yeah this this really shows the full power of what can happen when you're being innovative around around how you're using finance. Yeah, and an absolutely inspirational tale from you. your PhD, you know, <laughs> passion about justice and infrastructure to now just how much capital you're deploying to do That's that very wonderful. work. We feel very lucky. We've got a team. We're based here in Philadelphia. We have a team that is super committed, super excited about the strategy. Um, you know, we. Uh, 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 you know, if, uh, just for the last couple minutes of the segment, I'd love to share one other example with you, if we have if we have a moment. Um, you know, we um, uh, you know we also recently uh, completed a transaction with uh, the African Development Bank, which was a first of its kind uh, synthetic securitization, a billion dollar portfolio of uh, infrastructure and financial institutions loans to 18 different countries in Africa. And the loans were not to the countries. The loans were located in 18 different countries and bridges, power plants, um, you know, other critical infrastructure that the African Development Bank has lent to over the years. And um, we, uh, in partnership with another uh, investor called Africa 50, which is a multilateral institution, we invest, also the European Commission is involved, we invested uh, in a way to de-risk that portfolio and the African Development Bank has freed up about $650 million of capacity to make new loans. So they call the deal room to run. Ah, yes. Uh, it's the idea being that it gives the bank the, the, the room to run to meet some of the development needs of Africa. And that was an incredibly exciting transaction because it was the first ever synthetic securitization that we're aware of anyway, between a multilateral development bank and private sector investors. And it really shows for so many years, the World Bank and all those other forums have been talking about how do we crowd in private sector investors and this deal really showed the power of impact and the power of securitization yep. to act at scale. Yep. Fabulous. Andrew Hones. Thank you. This is just great work. Great I'm, work. I'm thrilled to hear you're headquartered in Philadelphia. We love when <laughs> you know graduating talent stays and works here. Um, awesome. You know, just a really fantastic narrative from, from passion to you know, a really significant impact in an innovative way. This is this is really worth the watch. Love. Yes, Mariner oh. Infrastructure Investment Management. We'll be watching and listening. We'll have you back on. Thank you. Hear about the next couple big deals. Congratulations on that. Uh, delighted. Uh, Thank uh, you. Compliment from the Financial Times as well. Thank you. Really well, appreciate holy it. Holy cow! Very yes. cool. Thank you. Have well, a nice thanks. Have a nice rest of the show. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank we'll you. see you around the conference. Thank you. Shifting to another great member of an earlier panel today, Diedrich Timmer, the Executive Vice President of Client Relations at Sustainalytics. Welcome. Hello. Welcome. Nice to meet you. Good to see you. So for our listeners who aren't familiar, because Sustainalytics can be a, an often a business-to-business -business type of tool, tell us what Sustainalytics is and, and why there is a need to create it. Right. So uh, Sustainalytics is a research firm. And what we do is we conduct research on around 10,000 companies worldwide on how sustainable they are. 
And basically what we do is we rank and rate companies, and then we also provide all the details around why they score well on sustainability or ESG fronts or impact fronts. And I joined the organization around 15 years ago and I had six colleagues. And by now we have over 500 oh wow. in 17 different countries. Well, I think I was maybe the sixth employee at Wharton Social Impact. <laughs> so hopefully we'll be doing a show where we talk about our 500 employees soon. Yeah. Um, how has the demand evolved? You know, who were some of the first clients and folks asking for this information yeah. and what does that landscape look like now? Yeah. So my history really starts in Amsterdam. So I moved from the Netherlands to the US around six years ago. So the most of what I saw was demand coming in Europe. And that were mostly investors that really didn't like what was offered by the regular financial institutions. Right. And they wanted to create portfolios that were different, had a much higher ethical standard, and typically they would actually shy away from those companies that they wouldn't align with their views in relation to uh, societal developments or the environment. I think from there, it has changed a ton because a lot of our clients right now are large mainstream financial institutions that just look at ESG factors as a different lens or something that gives them a better indication of long-term risk or opportunity. Yeah, seeing it as a material risk. Exactly. How about what is being measured? How yeah. has that evolved? <laughs> so um, when we started measuring, we actually measured using a stakeholder model. So we would look at the various stakeholders and from a pure sustainability background, we would then measure you know, what is the impact on clients or employees, on suppliers. From there, the methodologies have really evolved over time where we looked at, uh, in the second generation research, at environmental, social, and corporate governance issues, where we would look at how well is a company prepared to deal with these issues, and more from a company and uh, relating the business drivers to sustainability drivers. And we've actually launched our third generation product now, and now we're looking at it from a different angle again, Ooh. which is focusing on what exposures does a company has, have? So where do they invest or what activities do they have and how do they create risks through that exposure? And then we look at how well do they manage it? And traditionally we would measure a company within their sector. So we would say a mining company is better than another mining company or a bank, but it wasn't really possible to do cross-sectoral analysis. And we really shifted towards a more absolute approach where you could now see what the impact is in terms of risk from an investment where you shift from, for instance, a financials company to a chemical companies and what the additional risks are. And, and this is uh, in addition to the other uh, research you do, right? Yeah. So it's a kind of layered on. Great, okay. now replacing it. Yeah. Excellent. To get specific with an example that I do a lot of work on, so mm -hmm. taking a look at gender to paint the picture for our listeners, how has, you know, how have the fields that you've been sort of, you know, capturing and selecting evolved? Are you able to get from companies all the fields and all the data points that you'd like to be getting these yeah. days? Can you tell us a little bit more about that specific example? So that's the most major challenge, right? And I think when we started, when I started, we actually had a lot of companies send us physically their reports and we would have enormous volumes of reports in our mailbox. We've done a lot of research that so way too. I can <laughs> so I think also the availability of data has changed tremendously, right? If you look at the S&P 500, around six years ago, around 20% of companies reported on sustainability performance. Right now it's around 95%. As I mentioned, we cover 10,000 companies worldwide, including in emerging and frontier markets. And they're all stock listed, so they have requirements related to regular annual reports and risk paragraphs within it. But still, for instance, to come back to your questions on gender, for many of these companies, you wouldn't find any information there. And what we typically do then is ask companies to give us their documents around their policies or their management systems, and we actually filter out those topics that relate, for instance, to gender, mm -hmm. equality, et cetera. So more on the policy side, yeah. you know, what is the maternity yeah. leave or, you exactly. know, these different things. Um, what happens when there's information you think is material and, and important to track and measure, mm -hmm. and it's not something that shows up in one of these policy documents or um, is publicly available? Yeah. So how it would normally work is we look at the various themes that are relevant for companies, and within those themes we would look for indicators that give us an indication of how well a company manages that. So we would look at policies, management systems, and then performance information, and we value the performance information the best. So if companies have good performance information and they have good performance, we would identify them as relatively low risk. In the absence of information, for instance, if they don't have a policy, we would typically mark a company as being really high risk on that particular topic, and then we would weigh it in that way. So, you know, given all the, the advances of technology and the interest in big data and data of all sorts, mm -hmm. 
Are you optimistic that there will be more points that you'll be able to evaluate, that companies will be more willing to collect and report on this information? Yeah. Or will it require a policy change that forces it on them? So I think policy has been great, right? And also the, the efforts of stock exchanges. Where we actually say our own uh, responsibility is we reach out to every single company that we research. All the 10,000? So 10, all 10, the 10,000. That's why so, you have 500 people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we ask them for feedback also on the reports that we create. So rather than us sending out questionnaires, we actually give them the information that they then need to verify. Um, we also have rankings uh, where we highlight the top performers. And for instance, with Channel News Asia, we worked for many years on highlighting the best Asian companies because we saw that there was a really big gap there. And the best way to encourage firms is actually to highlight best practice. Um, the other thing now is people can find actually our ratings on Yahoo Finance. So if you would look in the finance section on Yahoo site, you could actually full, fully get the reports uh, and the ratings that we have on the various firms. Very cool. What do you think is next for, whether it's the Sanalytics or the industry, how do you see things evolving over the next five or 10 years? So I think the industry is really moving from the, oh, it's great that you tell me, but now show me, mm -hmm. great. All these intentions are great, but so there's a big demand for data and for proving the impact or the intentionality of what mm -hmm. you're trying to achieve. So it means that the demands on us as an organization are huge because we can't create all the data sets that people want. Um, we're investing heavily in technology, so how do we collect information better, how do we curate it, how do we manage that? And only in a later stage do we then bring it to our analysts. And it makes our analysts far more effective in assessing performance. So rather than saying technology overtakes what the person does, we actually think that it is a full overlay and provides better insights. The other thing we're building are predictive uh, analysis. So if you have other metrics, other ways on how you could predict how a company performs, and that's also technology related. And then the last part is also technology, and that is how do we deliver our research within all these financial uh, companies in the most effective way. Excellent, it sounds like a lot of exciting stuff to come. Opportunities, exactly. exactly. Absolutely. Well, and it's, it really is important, because I think there's, um, on one hand you do want this information, but you don't want there to be information overload and or a real burden on collecting the information, right? Mm -hmm. You know, because I know that that's always a challenge for, for some of the smaller organizations, and you know, I guess even for the larger ones. So the more we can use technology to um, collect the information, but then also have this predictive value, that would be very exciting. Yeah. Yes. And also presenting the right data points, right? Yes. So rather than giving the whole set of data sets, where do you abstract and get those data points that are most meaningful to you? Yep. And that's one of those things we're working really hard to achieve as well. Yeah. Excellent. Diedrich Timmer, Executive Vice President of Client Relations at Sustainalytics. Thank you for being here with us. Our segment here live from the floor of the Total Impact Conference is coming to an end. Hard to believe. I know. It really flies fast. by with these great conversations. But we want to thank Diedrich and the rest of our guests who are joining us here at our live studio on the floor. Uh, we'd also like to thank the conference for having us. It's really exciting to be able to connect with all of these wonderful thought leaders and innovators Absolutely. in the space. And we want to thank you listeners, most of all, for listening. We hope this has been a fun segment. Be sure to tweet us at uh, Biz Radio or at Wharton Social. Tell us what you thought, what you'd like to hear more of. This has been Dollars and Change from the 2019 Total Impact Conference here on Sirius XM, Channel 132, Business Radio Powered by the Wharton School. I'm Sandy Hunt. And I'm Cheryl Kuhlman. We hope you enjoyed the show and give us a listen next week for more at the intersection of business and impact. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.